The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Me tonight a bit. My uh, allergies have decided to come forth and blossom. I'm only allergic to California. I never had them before I moved out here. So those of you who have either listened or come in the last few weeks know that I'm doing a series of talks on listening as spiritual practice. And all of these talks have a single purpose. It's to immerse ourselves in the question, to live in the question. What is it like to be formed and transformed by listening, while listening? What if we had as our intention, whenever listening to someone, that we would be formed and transformed by that listening, as opposed to the normal listening we do, which is, gosh, hurry up, let her finish, so I can say what's really important to me and what's really important to be said, of course, is what's important to me. And from my years of inquiry into this concept of listening, this practice of listening, I've distilled four steps, or practices is a better word. And last week, we talked about the second practice, which was listening for connection to others and to life. And two weeks ago, the first practice, which is about becoming curious when we're listening, giving up our certainty, giving up what we know, and becoming curious. And tonight, the third practice, learning to listen to what's not said, to what we don't hear. And next week, the fourth and final practice, there are no others to whom we listen. The dance of not to. This morning I went to uh, a new doctor, a new primary care physician, thankfully, that my wife found because we didn't like the one we had. And I was just chatting and getting to know her as she was making sure I didn't have a sinus infection, which I don't, yes. And she told me she had an eight-year-old son and something about her son. And I said, well, how's he doing in school? What's going on with him? And she said, he's learning to listen to others. And he's learning to listen to what's not said. I thought, ah, this is going to be a very interesting day. Because we are so connected, and we just don't live that way. Before I get to that third practice, I want to do a little review of the first two, primarily from the, per- from the perspective of, how do I take this on? How can I practice this? So that it's not just some intellectual concept that I've heard about that's kind of fun to listen to or not very fun to listen to or whatever your judgment about it is. So, the first practice, giving up certainty and listening with curiosity. Start paying attention 
when you're listening to someone, whether you're being curious about what they're saying or whether you are listening inside your own head knowing what they should be saying and what you will say as soon as they're done talking. Whether you're listening with curiosity and openness or I've heard this all before, when are they going to stop saying this? Notice. Just have some noticing. A little mindfulness practice when you're listening. Whether you're curious or whether you're certain. Without judgment or criticism of yourself. Because as soon as you start judging yourself about how, what you're observing, the observation shuts down. We go right back into our well-worn neuronal pathways. It's, we can't get out of those neuronal pathways from a place of self-criticism and self-judgment. So take it on as a mindfulness practice, and especially when you're in a difficult conversation. When you're engaged with someone and you remember, ask yourself, am I listening right now in certainty or in curiosity? Just silently ask yourself that question. That's a place to begin this practice. And after some time of doing that, just take that on, just that little practice. After some time of doing that, spend some time in reflection and pay attention to these questions. Things like, since I've been paying attention to this distinction between certainty and curiosity, what have I learned about myself? What percentage of time have I found myself listening from certainty versus curiosity? Is that changing? And what drives my need for certainty? What's underneath that longing for certainty? And on the other hand, what arouses my curiosity? What pulls me out of my stuck neuronal pathways and into a place where I'm really curious about what others around me are saying? What allows me to release my need to know and enables me to let go of what I believe I know and step into an unknown place of communicating and relating? Those reflective practice questions. And what you'll see, because I know the way my mind works and my mind works like your mind works, is you'll begin to uncover the doubts and preferences and fears that give rise to your need to know. And that will open the door, that knowledge, that self-awareness, that mindfulness will open the door to the second practice, which is listening to life and to others. Beginning with listening to others. Because as I let go of certainty and drop into curiosity, I become immediately more present. To the degree that I'm certain, I'm in my head. To the degree that I'm curious, I'm present and open to you. And when that presence arises, presence is the beginning of connection. If I'm in my head, I'm not connected with you. If I'm present with you, 
I'm out of my head and I'm with you. Curiosity connects me with you. My certainty disconnects me from you. So especially those of you who are longing for friends and relations and people to be close to you and to build a community for yourself. That simple practice will revolutionize your life. I promise you. Why? Because when I'm certain, I'm in here. And when I'm curious, I'm out there. And out there, I'm available for connection and relationship. In here, I'm just doing it the way I've always done it. In spite of the fact that it doesn't work, I keep doing it that way, hoping to get a different result. That's the human mind at work. Aha, this is where I am. So, as we expand into this second practice of connection with others, begin to ask yourself these reflective questions. How do I recognize when I'm connecting with another? What does it feel like? How does disconnected feel? We all got a pretty good idea how that feels, but we may be so used to it that we can't see the distinction. It's like if I only eat vanilla ice cream, the distinction of chocolate doesn't live for me. It's really a shame if that's the case for you. (laughs) And if I'm only in disconnection, the feeling of connection might be scary and cause me to be uncertain, which is really terrific. Because in uncertainty, connection arises. What are the subtle elements of that distinction in my body? How does it feel? What do I like, dislike, and am neutral about it? And how about my mental states of happiness, sadness, contentment? How are they impacted by my connection with others or my disconnection from others. What happens around me and in my moods and in my mind? Just pay attention. Take it on. You can do it all the time. You don't have to be sitting on a cushion. In fact, this is not about sitting on a cushion. This is about being mindful in daily life. And as that connection with others starts to gain some territory, you start to get some traction it will easily move into a subtle but more expansive connection with life. So what do I mean by a difference between connection with others and a connection with life? Well, we've all felt that at times. Out in some wonderful place in nature, some expansive opening in your heart, some time when you've been really excited Maybe not as an adult, but looking back as a child at times when you were just spontaneously joyous. That's connected with life. And it's in this place that for me, the issue that I've touched on in the last couple of talks, our worldview, our separative Newtonian worldview gets in our way. And 
why we're not living in alignment with the quantum reality that we now know is life. Because in quantum reality, there's connections. We have all these little gadgets and computers that we play with all the time, and those are quantum machines. They're not based on Newtonian physics. They're based on a whole different approach to life. But we haven't gotten it as a culture. If we had gotten it as a culture, we would not be so separate. We would not still be killing ourselves. The species that eats its own, that's us. And we wouldn't be killing our home, the earth. The species that destroys the planet around it and then moves on somewhere else. We wouldn't be doing that if we truly had shifted from this Newtonian separative view where I'm here and you're there and if you're different from me then I have the right to cut you off, not like you, get rid of you. If you have a different religion I can kill you. If you're a woman and I'm a man and I live in a culture where women are evil, they're the source of my sexual arousal, so they're bad, I have to cover them up or I have to separate myself from them. That's Newtonian physics at work. That's the thinking that's derived from that worldview. I mentioned a couple of times this double slit experiment where if a scientist is trying to measure and observe particles, whether they show up as a, on a, a particle or whether they show up as a wave, depends upon whether one slit is open in the box where the electrons are being measured, or two. And even if the physicist opens two slits at the very last moment, at which point electron shows up as a wave, it's as if there's a connection. And I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. Even if the physicist waits till the very last moment to open the second slit, the electron seems to know in some way because it shows up as a wave when there's two slits open or as a particle when there's one. There's a connection. That's the essence of quantum physics. And um, we don't live as if we're connected with life and with others. So taking on the practice with curiosity of what might it be like is the next step in this progression. From giving up certainty, through curiosity, through getting curious about connecting with others, and as I connect more with others and I feel more grounded with those around me and safer and more open, I start to notice the weird mysteries of life, the connection with life, like the doctor this morning saying to me. And I don't mean that in saying to me her son was listening to what's not being said. I don't mean it in a woo-woo way at all, because it isn't. 
Years ago, when I was at Kripalu, we brought in a consultant who happened to be uh, a man who had created a lot of the trainings done in the old S network, if any of you ever participated in the S training, as I did many, many years ago. He had created those trainings, and we brought him in to create a, help us create a course based on yogic principles that would transform the organization. And it definitely transformed the organization because in the process of doing this course, we discovered that our guru had raped a number of young women over the years and was having a long-time affair with the CEO. So that was very transforming, to say the least. <laughs> and my friend Ken Enbender, who helped us create this course, was training me to lead this course. And after doing it, I don't know, six or seven times around North America, I, I would have coaching calls with him frequently. And one day I said to him, you know, Ken, it was a weekend course, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. I said, some days, some weekends, it, feel like, it feels like I'm just right there and I'm totally connected. And everything just flows through exactly the way you've outlined it in this manual. And it seems effortless. And then the next time I'm paying attention to the manual, it feels like to me I'm doing exactly what I've done in the past. And it feels awful. I feel disconnected. People are fighting with me, figuratively speaking, arguing with what I'm saying. There's no connection. And I don't know what the distinction is, what the difference is between the times when it seems to flow and happen and the times when it doesn't. Now, isn't, that's a pretty profound question when you think about it. Do you know in your life what's the difference between the days that you create that have such a wonderful, magical flow to them and the times when it feels like you're running through pluff mud if you don't know what pluff mud, that's because you're not from South Carolina, where in the swamps there's a lot of pluff mud, and it is not easy to run through pluff mud. So Ken said to me, there's only one thing happening at a time. And I remember where I was sitting at my dining room table in my house in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, when he asked me that question. And I said, what does that mean? There's only one thing happening at a time. And he said, in his usual way, call me back when you've taken some territory on that. <laughs> and that was the end of our call. And so here's the territory I took on that. I began to notice out of my curiosity about that question, I used that question as a focal point. What's the one thing happening at a time? What does it mean? So when I led the course, I was paying attention to the manual and going through the process and teaching people yoga, teaching them how to meditate. It was an introductory course to all of that. 
But I was listening in a different way out of that question. And I began to notice that when Susie said something on Friday night and Sally said something on Friday night and Joe said something on Saturday morning, to the degree that I held all of those comments, questions, stories of their life, things that they were stuck in in their lives, to the degree that I held them, and I can now use these words, in a Newtonian physics kind of separative way, that Sally and Joe and Jill and Jim, they all had separate lives and separate stories. To the degree that I held them that way, things didn't turn out so well. To the degree that I listened for an underlying theme that connected it all, to the degree that I came from a place of being connected with it all, to that degree, magic arose. So I offer you that practice. There's only one thing happening at a time in your life. There's only ever one thing going on. And we're only ever right here, right now. And this is what's going on. And if this is a disconnected moment in your life, then you're not listening for the theme, the connecting force. You're not listening from a place of quantum physics to the connections. You're listening to the disconnections, which is what we're so trained to do by our attitudes towards each other. And because we're so stuck in the Buddha's three characteristics. We think it's permanent. We think the way you are, the way you show up in my life, that's the way you are. And I have you labeled, that's the way Joe is. And that's the way my wife is. And that's the way my mother is. And that's the way everybody in our life, we know the way they are, and that's the way they are. Forgetting totally the Buddhist statement, whatever is will be was. It changes. Everything changes constantly. There is no permanence. And as a, if you're a serious practitioner, as I am, we have to explore how our unconscious attitude about impermanence impacts my connection or lack of connection to others in life. If I hold you in in a permanent attitudinal way, this is the way my friend Michael is, then I'm holding Michael as permanent, flying right in the face of the three characteristics. This is the way Daniel is. This is what Daniel prefers. If I hold myself in that way, I'm not living with curiosity about Daniel. I'm living with certainty about the way he is. And I can't be open to connecting with Michael if I have him in a certainty place instead of a curiosity place. How is he tonight? What's he like today? 
How about your spouse or significant other or your boss or your co-workers? What if you went there tomorrow and with uncertainty and curiosity rather than, I know the way they are, <sighs> here's another day, jeez. <clears throat> and here's the real kicker to all of that. I'm reading this wonderful book that has me on this quantum physics, Newtonian physics jag. It's called Leadership in the New Science, Discovering Order in a Chaotic World. It's by Margaret Wheatley, and she's a, a Shambhala practitioner. And she writes about a physicist named John Wheeler, describing him as having been an eloquent proponent of the participative universe. Participative universe. A place where the act of looking for certain information evokes the information we lo went looking for and simultaneously eliminates our opportunity to observe other information. Now, that's a really stunning statement. You probably didn't get it the first time, so let me read it again. The universe we really live in, this quantum universe, is participative. And what that means is, just like the double-slit experiment, it's a place where the act of looking for certain information evokes or calls forth that information. So if I'm looking for A, A appears. And that means B didn't appear. So if I have you as a certainty that you are A, when I see you, that's what I look for in you. And if you show up as B, C, and D, I don't ever see it. Because we're stuck in anicca. We're stuck in permanence. We permanentize. That's an interesting word. We make each other permanent. And then we wonder how we can't, why we can't connect. She goes on to write, when we choose to experiment for one aspect, we lose our ability to see any others. Every observation is preceded by a choice about what to observe. No one, not scientists, not leaders, nor children, simply observes the world and takes in what it offers. We all construct the world through lenses of our own making and use these lenses to filter and select. We actively participate in creating our world. That's what happened for me when I went from there's all this disconnected stuff happening and so the course Life is Transformation isn't going so well and I wonder what's going on. This is a really bad group. I just got stuck with another bad group. When I went from that place to there's only one thing happening at a time, suddenly all the connections started showing up for me. And I could hear the theme that went through it. And I could connect what Sally said on Friday night 
to what Susie said on Sunday afternoon and people's experience in the course was incredibly different. So, from certainty to curiosity, from curiosity to connection with others, from connection with others to connection with life, and then we start to be able to listen for what is not said, what we don't hear. Those of you who were here last week heard me tell the story of how I ended up here in California, how I was sitting on a plane and my now wife was in the seat in front and I saw the back of her head and heard her voice without hearing a word she was saying and was just pulled out of the deep, deep, deep depression I was in for just a moment, the deepest of my life. In that moment, I was listening to what wasn't being said. And we all have had little taste of that experience. When we've fallen in love, or when we've had an incredibly uplifting experience, maybe listening to music or seeing a great movie, and we felt the theme and power of that movie beyond what the words were coming at us. We felt connected and immersed in it, reading a novel and getting lost in that world. That's what hearing what's not being said is about. Playing with a little baby who's preverbal. Nothing's being said. But a lot is being said if we're listening. And watching my mother, my daughter, who just has a four-month-old, watching her, Jessica and Bella, Bella connect. What's not being said? And we can't do that, really, until life has eroded us some. For the most part, we take the erosion that life gives us as the struggles and our mistakes and the things we, choices, bad choices we made and being stuck in places that are troubling for us, our relationships with some parent that we're disconnected from. We take all of that as mistakes, bad things that happen when actually life is eroding away Daniel's belief that it's all about Daniel, anatta. Life is eroding away my disconnection from dukkha. The fact that our existence here is permeated with that kind of suffering because we try to hold on to things and make them permanent, we permanentize each other, how we view each other, and we have everything that you do be about me. If you don't cook dinner the way I like it, you did it because you're upset with me. It's about me. 
we are really weird. (laughs) So, this weathering away of erosion by life opens us to listen to life with our entire being. And when we listen with our entire being, we can begin to hear what's not being said. We've all had the experience where someone is saying A, B, C, D, and we're going, uh-uh. That's not what they're meaning. That's not what they want to say. There's something underneath that. There's something more. We've had that experience. We've done it ourselves. We've said A, B, C, and D when we've meant and wanted to say D, E, and F. So when life erodes us, we can finally begin to hear dukkha, that our grasping and attachment to what we want inevitably leads to suffering. We are hearing what's not being said, what we would not otherwise hear, until we begin to see dukkha. Once we begin to see dukkha, We can see, oh, I've been missing what's really being said here to me about life. Life is telling me over and over again that if I do this and this and this, I'm going to suffer. But I still do this and this and this, and I suffer, and I complain about it. So I'm not hearing that life is saying to me, dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. If you keep grasping and trying to have it the way you want, instead of being with the way it is, you're going to suffer. Life has to beat us upside the head until we're almost senseless before we begin to hear that. That's the erosion of life. And likewise, when we begin to hear impermanence, we begin to hear the constant shifting and changing of life and of other people around us, and of ourselves. We're constantly shifting and changing. But we don't listen that way. We're not listening to attachment equals suffering, grasping equals suffering, holding on, ignoring impermanence equals suffering. We're not listening that way. If we were listening that way, we would live differently than we do. And we would let go of life as a cruel trick on Daniel. All my inadequacies, my mistakes, the stories I tell myself about myself that explain to me how my life turned out. That's what we hold as certain. That's what we fixate about ourselves and others. And so we can't connect. And in that disconnection, we get more certain to try to protect ourselves. And so we suffer more because of the lack of connection. And we can't hear what life is reaching out to give us because we only hear what we intentionally observe and want to hear. What we call forth to hear is the universe that we hear. 
That's the participatory universe. That's the firm basis of quantum physics. I talk like I'm some sort of physicist. I hated science. I don't know anything about it. So if I've got this all messed up, that's okay with me because it's really helping me understand this. And I hope it's helping you. So an example, a story of hearing what's not being said. I was mediating, I was hired to mediate a big environmental dispute in a town in Utah. There had been lead mines. And those lead mines had spillways. And the spillways back in the 19th century just went right out the back door of the lead mine and out into the field. And years passed and the lead mine was gone and cities began to grow up and neighborhoods were built right where that spillway had been. And as is usual with those kind of neighborhoods, it's most always the poor neighborhood that gets built there, the place where no one else wants to live. And there were tremendously high levels of lead in the soil. And there are a lot of children in that neighborhood, and children do what children do, eat dirt when they get a chance. They're, they're very curious, and they don't have a lot of certainty. And this looks like it might be good. I'll try it out. So my company that I worked for then had done a lot of investigation, had interviewed all the different people, the city council, the company that owned the lead mine is still here, still at work, polluting our country as I speak. And the city council people from that neighborhood and the rest of the town that interviewed all these people that had been meeting together for five or six years to try to resolve this conflict of how to clean up that neighborhood and who was responsible. And every, when I read the interviews, every interview said, well, the problem is Joe. If it weren't for Joe, we could get this thing resolved. And every single person said that. Now, it turned out Joe was the city councilman from that neighborhood. And he had grown up in that neighborhood. Still lived there in that neighborhood. And he was the head of the custodians union for the schools in the county. So the day of the mediation comes. All us guys are in suits. And in walks Joe in a t-shirt with a, pack, a cigarette package rolled up in his sleeve. And... Before he came in the room, you could feel one atmosphere. And when he walked into the room, I heard something different. I heard tension. I heard wariness. So when the mediation began, every time Joe so much as looked like he was going to raise his hand, I called on him. And every time he spoke, I took what he said and did what good mediators do, reframed it 
spoke it back. This is what I'm hearing you say to make sure that Joe agreed with my understanding of what he had said. But also, because I knew that no one listened when Joe spoke, the room shut down. I could hear it shut down. But when I spoke, a person with authority, not really as a mediator, but perceived as authority, they listened. We had set out this mediation to last for about eight or nine months with a meeting of this large group of people once a month and some small meetings of smaller groups in between time. That's the way we had planned it out because that's the way those mostly go. We settled that case at 3 o'clock on the first day, exactly the way Joe had proposed that it be resolved. That's listening to what's not being said. The attitudes about Joe, the tension when he spoke, the inability to hear him because he didn't speak like I speak, like most of you speak. I didn't know that that's what I was doing then. It's only looking back many years that I have come to the place of understanding, oh, that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing in Life is Transformation, that course. The deep problem is that we hold ourselves as stable. This is the way I am. This is my form. But our body changes literally every moment. For example, our skin is new every month, our liver every six weeks, our brain with all of its valuable cells changes its content of carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen every 12 months. Day after day as we inhale and exhale, we give off what were our cells and take in elements from other organisms to create new cells. When we leave here tonight, we are all part of each other, literally, because we have sloughed off enough cells and we've breathed each other in. That's what we do. But we don't live this way. We just don't live this way. And so I'm inviting you between now and next week, if you come back, start off just this week noticing how certain versus curious you are. And each time, with mindful practice, you ca we catch ourselves, either in conversation with others, listening to what has been said and said and said, because that's the way I expect Susie to speak. I just zone out because Susie's saying it again just like she always says it. When you catch yourself doing that, you're in a well-worn groove in your brain. All of us have them. That's the way our brains develop. Take a deep breath. Remember this talk in this moment. Release that thought pattern. 
and start to retrain your brain. Our brains develop no matter how old we are as long as we develop them. We used to think that at a certain age they stopped. That's not true. They develop. But we have to intentionally choose. I'm going to hear Susie with curiosity and uncertainty rather than, oh, geez, do I have to hear this again? And that will have a magical effect because it requires that you open your heart. And when your heart opens, we actually connect. And that's what we all long for. And when we connect with another or life, we begin to hear the mystery of what's not being said. And then we can connect even more deeply with others and life. And right now, with just this breath, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda, Neruda, I'm sorry, and now we will all keep still and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victory with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Questions? Doubts, disagreements, rotten eggs, tomatoes, they're all allowed. I'm really curious. Over here. <coughs> ah. I notice about myself that the certainty versus curiosity is not constant. It varies from person to person. Mm -hmm. If I meet a brand new person, I am 500% curious. Mm -hmm. I really am. Like, I really, okay, I wanna, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. But on the other extreme, with someone I know very well, like my sister, 
I'm 100% certain. Yeah. She is the way she is. Right. And most of us are. I mean, not just she. Most of us are the way we are. Um, I know you mentioned the impermanence, but I haven't seen that much about people's personal attributes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, including myself, the personal attributes tend to be rather permanent. If they change at all, they are extremely slow to change over many years. So it's very hard when you know someone well to, you know, and again, given that I haven't seen, of the people I've known long enough, I haven't seen much change in them. But they are who they are. I am who I am. Change comes very slowly, if at all. So how do I let go of certainty in that situation with the sister whom I know very well and she is the way she is? I think everyone has this exact same question. True? We all have, my sister, yes, this is my sister too. So what I hear is, how can we give up certainty when I know from my experience that people are the way they are and that when they change, they change slowly? And usually not for the better. And usually, yeah. <laughs> And usually they get worse. That which they do that annoys me becomes even more pronounced and more annoying. The only change I've seen in people I've seen has been related to money. Money has changed them. Other than that, I haven't seen much else. And probably not in or a good way. Or if they've been in a very hurtful relationship and once they've walked out of it, the bitterness. And So again, yes. it's not been a pleasant change. It's been yes. a change for the worse. So, I'm going to challenge you. That's your universe that you've just described. And you've described it eloquently for probably close to 100% of all of us. Certainly for me. That's the way I've lived most of my life. And I live that way because I believe in, 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 in permanence. And I don't see what I don't look for in a quantum reality what we choose to observe for is what we see scientists have proven this over and over again we go looking for x as the result of an experiment and x appears we go looking for y and y appears and we don't see what we don't look for. We see what we look for. We don't see what we don't look for. And we are stuck with permanence when the Buddha says over and over, anicca, impermanence. Everything changes, including your sisters. We just can't see it because we keep looking for permanence. That's our mindset. That's our worldview. That's our perspective. So how could we see anything else? 
That's where racial prejudice comes from. That's where prejudice against women comes from. That's where all kind of ethnic cleansing comes from. You are a certain, you are a Serb, though, so therefore you're like this, and therefore I can kill you. You are a Catholic, and therefore you're like this, and I'm a Protestant, and let's have a hundred years of war. You're a Sunni, I'm a Shiite. Your view of Muhammad is bad, my view of Muhammad is good, therefore for 3,000 years I can kill you. That is the evil that is destroying all of us. And the Buddha described it so simply for us. You are stuck in permanence. So, a simple little practice with your sister. The next time you talk to her or you're with her, remember this moment with me and you and say, hmm, I'm going to just take a little step towards curiosity. Maybe I'm seeing my sister and I've got her locked in this cage and maybe there's parts of her that are out there somewhere. So I'm going to just listen with curiosity. And then I'm going to observe what that does inside me because I'm practicing mindfulness. And I will observe the turmoil and how difficult that is and how I'm fighting against it because it's so hard to do because there she is being the way she is. Oh my goodness, look at her go. And I take a breath and I remember this moment with Daniel and I take a breath and I say, okay, Uncertainty, curiosity, uncertainty, curiosity. I want to take a step. I intend to take a step. I intend to observe what I haven't been observing. I intend to see that which I've been blind to. I intend it. That's enough right there. Just do that. That will be so hard, I promise you. But if you do that, and don't start with your sister. Start with somebody easier. (laughs) If you do that, I promise, I know, because I've done it with my sister, I call forth a different being. Now, Are those other traits that I see all the time there? Yeah. The more and more I call her forth differently, the less and less of those I see. And what's really profound is that that's the way it works when we look at ourselves because that's where we're mostly stuck. We have just such a permanent Daniel. He is this way. And when he does the things that I like, I feel good about it, but mostly he does these things that I just can't stand. And I separate myself from him. And so I live in a separative Newtonian worldview instead of a connected, related worldview. And until I connect with Daniel, until I have a whole 
curiosity and openness and love for Daniel in all of his perfections and imperfections, I can't connect with another from that place. So begin this practice in the mirror with yourself. Spend some time. I used to do this. This is not easy. When I was being trained as an S guest seminar leader, I had to do mirror work. I had to stand and look at myself in the mirror and say what I was supposed to say. It was excruciatingly difficult. So look at yourself in the mirror tonight at home with curiosity and openness and love and see what happens. Just start with you. And thanks for the courage to ask such a crystallized question. Okay, one more. Quickly. Um, sometimes I feel like uh, I have the opposite problem. Like everything's changing so fast in the world, whether it's you know international relations and everything that's happening in the globe or the economy. Or so I see our world is just accelerating and change. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any. Uh, I, I kind of, in a way, have like given up on counting on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you, uh, how you think about that. I've got a mic. Yes. So you are seeing all the change and you're seeing how fast it is and how rapid it is and that's unsettling for you. Yeah, it's unsettling. So you are seeing impermanence which is good and you're seeing that that change, that rapid change in many places is creating suffering because there's an attachment to the way it was and the change doesn't seem well grounded. It's not connected. It's not relational. It's separative and individualistic. And so it's creating even more suffering. And you see that suffering and you feel it. And you have created a self that is disturbed by it and worries about it and is disconnected from it. It's about the impact on you. The place to begin to pay attention is the curiosity that this is the way life moves And Daniel doesn't like it. And so he believes it's about him and it's threatening to him in some way. So he needs to try to protect himself from it. Oh, I'm making it be about me. I'm making it up that it's about me. And I'm forgetting that I am connected to it all. That there is no individual, separate Daniel to which it is happening. That's what I have trained my mind to observe and so that is what I observe. 
and that's what I experience, and that's what I fear, the impact on me. What if instead I saw it from a place of connection? I'm connected to all that. Wow, this is happening in my lifetime. Wow, I'm really curious as to where this is going. Where is this taking us? How can I contribute to it from my place? I bet there are people around me who feel the same kind of disconnection. What if I opened to them and got curious about how it was with them and didn't have it be just about me? Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Let's sit for just a moment and take this in. Notice the dislocation in your body-mind if it is there. And notice whether you are welcoming it or unsettled by it. To that degree, you're in, uns- you're in certainty or curiosity. Become curious. And through that, connect. And through that, begin to hear what's not being said. And through that connection, find a much